This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Ever wonder why Congress just doesn't act or vote on things or pass bills anymore? Well, according to Lauren Baer, a candidate for Congress in Florida, it has to do with political will. May not be enough politicians in office or elected officials who are representing the notion of America's identity, but instead are focused on a limited few. So if we're going to change that, we got to turn out and vote in the midterm elections this year in November in 2018. Stay tuned for a far-ranging conversation with Lauren as we discuss how a state like Florida, which has been ravaged with the politics of gun control to immigration reform to even border crises, is engaging a notion of these debates at home that are reflecting the will of what it takes to do this hard work in Washington, D.C. And we got to thank our friends at How Stuff Works for introducing us to Lauren, committed with Joe Piazza, had an incredible episode uh, featuring Lauren and her wife, reflecting on what it means to be a candidate for office, particularly when you're in a same-sex relationship, you're raising a daughter, and how the inspiration of those relationships at home can make a difference in your world. Definitely go check out uh, that incredible show over at How Stuff Works, committed with Joe Piazza podcast. But if you're interested in what it means to be a candidate for Congress and how that shapes our American identity, stay tuned because we got more great show coming up on American Enough. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. On September 5th, 1995, at the United Nations' Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing, a speech noted by then First Lady of the United States, Hillary Rodham Clinton, sought to closely link the notion of women's rights with human rights, most poignantly pointing out that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights. The very speech and the very line went on to not only define then later on Secretary Clinton's foreign policy doctrine of bringing American values and exporting our values in the foreign policy work that we did around the country. But it also resonated as a core underpinning of how we can link the very work of America's democracy abroad, pursuit of freedom abroad, and the very notion of what it means to be free at home to core fundamental attitudes that are all too often associated with niche constituencies or very particular interests. That speech and that concept not only went on to carry and define a legacy of the tireless public service of Secretary Clinton, but it also created a very unique space in the way of the foggy bottom federal building at the State Department operated its work in future administrations, from Secretary Clinton to Secretary Kerry, and even prior secretaries of state, including Secretary Albright and beyond, there have been core conversations in the Office of Policy and Planning of how to make sure that every intentional decision of our work at home or abroad carries through the very lens of inclusivity, of justice, and the broader sense of American freedom in the work that we try and do, even if it's overseas. And then enter Lauren Baer. Lauren not only had a chance to spend time advising both Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kerry in this very office, but she was also able to be a senior advisor to the UN ambassador, 
Samantha Power, ensuring that any time there was a promotion of U.S. values, that it was central to how we acted across a range of critical national security issues, human rights issues, and international law. Lauren not only spent time serving the Obama administration through January 2017, but of late and most recently has announced her candidacy for Florida's 18th congressional district. And when Americans think about Florida, particularly those that may have not spent time there, it's interesting to see a microcosm of the entirety of the country baked into one state. From the Panhandle, closer to the South, closer to Miami, and the Keys, you have a multitude of not only interests and demographics, but actively different pockets of political interests, political ideologies, and frankly, test cases for new experiments of how policy that happens in Florida can be exported and realized throughout the entirety of the United States. Championing a strong background tied to both the proponent of broadening the middle class, advocating for entrepreneurship and business, and strong values of public service, Lauren has not only had a family with deep roots in Florida, but now goes on to raise her own family in Florida. Today, we discuss not only what it means to be a candidate for office, but also what it means to be a candidate in a state whose politics and narrative of what it means to be an American can be so varied even when you jump from one zip code to another within your own home state of Florida. Lauren Baer, thanks for joining American Enough. I wanted to start with kind of that that big picture notion of how you see American ideals and values. And I know that that can sound a little kitschy, but you actively had a role in which you were promoting these values in our work overseas. Um, now you're aiming to do so in describing what you think the right tone and tenor and narrative is for your constituents um, or future constituents at home in the Florida 18th Congressional dis- District. Do you sort of see a difference in what the lens of those core American values are when you're talking about, you know, a human rights convention in Beijing or you're talking about um, a revolution in Tunisia versus talking about things like broadening economic prosperity at home? Or are they tantamount to one and the same? Well, for me, the the essence of what our country stands for um, is that we are a place of liberty and justice for all. That's the, that's the promise of America, and that rings true regardless of an individual's race, religion, creed, ethnicity, regardless of their gender or sexual orientation. And so when I think about what it means to be American and what it means to project American values, Um, It doesn't really depend on whether we're talking domestically or we're talking internationally. When we're looking at issues here at home, whether it is health care or tax reform or Medicare and Social Security, we want to project and we want policies that really benefit the entirety of our country, the entirety of people who live in our district. And when we're looking at the projection of American values abroad, What we're trying to do is uh, make clear that each and every individual uh, in this great big world, uh, regardless of where they're born, is uh, due and entitled to the same basic fundamental set uh, of human rights. So what guided me as a foreign policymaker guides me now as a candidate for Congress. And and that notion that, you know, everyone who can work hard and 
you know, ostensibly do the right thing, should be able to provide for their family, should be able to, you know, put food on the table and arguably leave a generation um, that comes after them a little better off than they came into this world has really been core to our country's social compact. It was certainly a, a central thesis to a lot of the um, economic positions that President Obama took, but it was also core to a lot of um, the positions that even prior presidents on both sides of the aisle, including President Bush and further back President Clinton struck. And I'm curious, we hear a lot today, um, and, and you have talked about this a lot from the campaign trail, about what it means for that very promise at the middle class level. Um, and there are questions whether you take a look at macroeconomic trends or hyperlocal trends in Florida around a widening income gap, say, but you know, among the middle class and and those that are have the highest concentrated wealth. There's you know widening um, pay inequities, um, not only between those at different rungs of the economy, but also among certain constituencies of, of varied races or various demogra- varied demographic backgrounds. And so that core American ethos that you just described. Is that still alive and well in our country? And if so, how how can we collectively advance it under this cloud of what arguably feels like very divisive times in America's identity? You know, I think we are in trying times right now. And if the the essence of, of the American promise is that you can work hard and get ahead and, and live comfortably in your own age, old age, and that your kids will have a life that's a, a little bit better than yours. If that's what the American dream has meant, then what I've heard on the campaign trail is that people are concerned um, about their ability to actually attain that American dream today. And whether it's young people graduating from college with overwhelming uh, student loan debt, or workers struggling to get by while unions are under attack, or seniors wondering how they're going to make it in their golden years without Medicare and Social Security, there's a real concern um, that we are at a point in time where what we've been able to promise generation after generation in our country, that life will keep getting a little bit better, um, that that promise will no longer be fulfilled. I have to say, uh, I'm an eternal optimist and and also a pragmatist, and I think we we can get back to that point, but it depends on good policymaking and the decisions that we make in in Washington, and that we need to be really clear-eyed about this. We can choose to make policies that just benefits a select few and the most fortunate among us, or we can choose to make policy that makes that American dream um, within the grasp and reachable for every single person in this country. And that's what I'm fighting for and what I want to do. And, you know, a lot of that policy um, when it comes to an America that is fit for purpose and works for everybody um, has sort of evolved in terms of what those ideologies can be or ought to be from both parties in the country. Um, you know, notably in, in recent uh, weeks and months, and particularly since uh, Bernie Sanders' p- presidential run last year, there have been overtures that Democratic positions that focus on things like um, access to to healthcare for all, perhaps through a single payer system, or universal access to education. Um, these these sort of very decent and basic concepts of what it might mean for all of us to just have the best outcomes for our families 
clean environments, first-rate public schools. Uh, these these are values that are core to our country, and certainly parties can agree on both sides. Um, but particularly with that I- idea and eye towards uh, the Sanders presidential run and some of the more recent Democratic primaries this year in the midterm season, um, they have been cast as being kind of extreme left policies, or in some instances, some have characterized them as a Democratic Party embrace, embrace of broader socialist values. Is that the right debate to be having, or should we be more so focused on what it actually means for our families and our children and our neighbors to access these downstream benefits? So one of the most interesting things to me on the campaign trail is that, you know, when I go out and talk to people, regardless of the labels they use to describe themselves, regardless of whether they are Democrats or Republicans, regardless of whether they're young people or seniors, whether they are immigrants or people who were born in our country, there's really a common set of things that people talk about wanting when it comes to their, their families. People talk about wanting things like quality, affordable health care good schools, a strong economy, but a fair economy. People talk about wanting a clean environment, and common sense gun safety reform, and a sensible foreign policy. So I really think that there is more, by the way, of shared values and shared aspirations in our country than the current divisive political climate um, allows us to believe at any given point in time. And so my goal, really, uh, on the campaign trail and then hopefully as a member of Congress is to look at these common things uh, that we aspire to as, as Americans and as human beings and say, how can we as a country live up to those aspirations? How can we make policy that allow these goals to be attainable for all of us? For me, that's the most productive conversation we can be having both as candidates and as policymakers. Absolutely. And this this notion of a broad inclusivity um, and sort of broadening the base of prosperity has, has really been a central tenet of your campaign and what you've been pushing for. And, and, and one sort of sliver of a component to that has been um, an emphasis on what it means for prosperity for all when you have this sort of consolidation of of wealth or influence or power, however you define those metrics, to be consolidated among a few. I'm just curious on your broader position um, on matters pertaining to how um, wealthy influence has has changed our elections. I know that that you've been very keen on some of the concerning outcomes of the landmark Supreme Court case on corporate giving in campaigns through Citizens United. Um, you've actually received the endorsement of organizations that are very intent on dealing with FEC reforms around giving in campaigns. Um, is that sort of campaign finance element now that you're a candidate do you see it actually playing a role day to day in the way decisions get made that affect the lives and the ability for people to, as you said, be able to access, you know, healthy schools, clean environments, good health care? Um, or is that sort of a symptom of a broader set of issues you're trying to tackle? Well, I just want to kind of take a step back and, and look at the big picture here, which is that trickle down economics doesn't work. Um, we know that. We, we've known that for a long time, that if you, if you want broad-based economic prosperity, if you want fair and equitable growth, uh, you, you can't just concentrate wealth in, in the hands of the select few um, and hope that everyday hardworking people will benefit from that. You, you've got to develop 
economic policies that actually enable people to find good jobs that pay a living wage, that have benefits like health care and retirement, uh, and that allow people to, to move up the economic ladder uh, and ensure a better life for themselves, their families, their, their kids. So as a fundamental economic principle, I believe that growth in this country comes from the bottom up. Now, when you're talking about campaign finance reform, I think most of us can agree, most people I talk to on the trail agree that, that money is having a really corrosive effect on our political system. Um, that's a big part of the reason why I took a voluntary pledge back in February that I wasn't taking any money uh, from corporate PACs, no money from big sugar, no money from big pharma, no money from big banks, uh, because I think uh, our elections and our policy should be driven by individuals uh, and that uh, decision makers' views get distorted when their campaign coffers uh, are lined with, with corporate money uh, instead. And so I am, in fact, a, a big proponent of campaign finance reform, of, of getting money out of politics. And, and I do agree with you that uh, an attitude about getting money out of politics can also go hand in hand with uh, an ethos towards economic growth that says we need to drive it from the bottom up. Both of those are similar in the sense that they want to put power and opportunity in the hands of everyday people, not the select few. And, you know, a lot of the that that notion, right, of, of how do you reconcile um, that prosperity or that opportunity for more and more Americans and not just a limited cohort of Americans has really been front and center in a lot of the overtures and actions, uh, economic actions of this current administration. And while, you know, many of us can argue that the the needs of, you know, one congressional district may vary from another congressional district, I think we can all agree that some of the actions from this administration certainly impact all of us, you know, notably President Trump's tax reform package, um, even even the very way that um, we're, we're talking about the economy at home um, of an America first posture that has already clearly implicated um, various sectors, including farmers based off of tariffs. All of these economic policies will continue to be debated as all president pol presidential policies have been. But one of the core elements of that debate has been are we actually helping a broader cut of Americans or are these tax packages or are these, these, these sort of trade war engaged tariff approaches just really disenfranchising huge swaths of the rest of the country? And, that, and I'm wondering, um, we've seen that debate continue to roar itself um, in across cable news, across the halls of Congress, and yet Congress hasn't necessarily put any particular checks um, that could, uh, you know, stymie a president from making decisions that might preclude a lot of Americans. And, you know, on the one hand, maybe that's the democratic process in this country to have the separation of powers between different branches. On the other hand, I'm curious from where you sit, when you talk to your voters in the Florida 18th, when you see these economics promise through the words of trickling down, but not necessarily play out that way, how can you ensure others, um, or maybe even ensure yourself that a seat in Congress might be able to steer that rudder in a direction that works for America economically, as opposed to just sustaining the policies that we're seeing play out from this Oval Office? I want to start with the, the tax plan here, um, because I think it's, it's pretty clear 
what the Republican Party was doing in passing this, this tax bill. They were giving an enormous tax cut to the wealthiest among us and to corporations uh, at the detriment of, of everyday working folks. Uh, those tax cuts that they handed out will increase the deficit by $1.5 trillion. Uh, that's a bill that, that our kids and our grandkids are going to have to pay. And that's a, a bill that the, the Republicans are looking to offset now by cutting Medicare and Social Security, programs that hardworking people have paid through into throughout their working lives and depend on to be able to make ends meet during their retirement. Um, so, so not only do I not think that this tax plan was, was fiscally responsible, um, I also don't think it was, was particularly fair. Uh, and in fact, you might argue that it, it's borderline cruel in, in the way that it was enacted. And I do believe that we can do better as a country. I do believe that Congress can provide something better in terms of economic policy and tax reform. We can enact uh, a tax bill that provides genuine relief to the middle class and working class, uh, not a handout to corporations and, and the most fortunate among us. Uh, these are choices that we make. Every time Congress passes a bill, every time they legislate, they're making choices. And I do believe that, that we can do better, especially if we start electing, which I hope we'll do this year, uh, different kinds of legislators with different kinds of priorities. And the that, that that that's an incredibly astute point because I think all too often it's easy for us to throw our hands up uh, if you're disaffected by what you see happening or you simply don't think that there's any change in in your pocketbook issues. Um, it's easy to just sort of boo the matter, um, but but you know as as your former boss. Uh, one said, you, you actually have to stop booing and, and get out there and start voting. And in a midterm year where the down ballot races aren't the, the sexiest of topics around any one kitchen table, um, they're incredibly important. And in, in your race in particular, you have an incumbent um, who is relatively new, I think sworn in in 2017, but has already had a pretty strong track record of supporting some of those policies that you were just speaking to on the economic side. Um, I, I believe that the, the representative voted in favor of that tax cut um, and Jobs Act bill of 17 and, act, and actually was under consideration um, by the Trump administration, uh, shortlisted for one of a, a cabinet secretary appointment at the Veterans Affairs Department. Uh, I'm curious from your perspective, when you think about kind of trying to engage in a change election and making this case to voters of making choices, smart choices about policies that benefit all, not just benefit a few, um, is it important to draw that distinction on the core issues that sort of impact day-to-day -day Floridians in the 18th Congressional District? Or is it important to draw that contrast to a incumbent representative who seems to be kind of in cahoots with a lot of the, the administration's thinking? Look, I think a representative has one job, one job only, and that is to represent the people who sent that person to Washington and, and vote in their interest. And what Brian Mast has done since he got to office in 2017 is consistently vote against the interests 
of his own constituents, and whether that was voting to take health care away from 74,000 people who live in this district uh, in his vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act, or whether it was voting to jeopardize Medicare and Social Security and burden our children and grandchildren with debt through his vote for the Republican tax plan, or whether it was his vote to lift environmental protections and give polluters free reign to dump toxins into our air and our water here in Florida. He's consistently taken votes uh, that work against the people he's supposed to serve. That's the message that I'm sharing with folks on the campaign trail. That's the information I think people need to be evaluating because at the end of the day, you just want to trust that the person who's there in Washington is actually representing you, is actually willing to make your life better, not harder, not more difficult. And Brian Mass just hasn't fulfilled that promise. Absolutely. And and I and I think one of the most obvious ways in which that promise seems to be at grave risk um, or danger, frankly, has been some of the the voting behaviors from Representative Mass um, when it comes to sorry, Mast when it comes to immigration. Um, I know that, you know, you and your wife are, are newly minted parents raising your young, beautiful daughter, Serena. Um, and at the same time, we're, we're seeing some very, very strong and disturbing sentiments of of harsh immigration par- policies, heartless immigration policies play out the border where those that are young parents themselves are being ripped apart um, from being able to be with their little ones. That's certainly a policy that the incumbent has endorsed. And it's certainly a a set of debates and conversations that um, won't go away anytime soon. Um, The ability for Congress to to pass meaningful immigration reform, addressing everything from visas to reunification to dreamers, has been a really, really tough challenge for for both this Congress as well as prior Congresses, um, regardless of who is in the Oval Office. And and I'm curious for, for many of us who look at these sort of policies at the border and are not just disheartened but but frankly broken by by what a country is capable of given prior stains in our nation's history of what it has meant to be an american um is there a capacity for us, for us as a country to learn from mistakes of the past as we inform public policy around immigration in the future. Uh, and I, by that, I, I sort of take a look at everything that has transpired from Ellis Island to you know World War II internment of the Japanese um, to modern times now. One would think that we would learn from those prior disgraces to human rights and civil liber- liberties and protections. And yet we seem to be repeating these mistakes with really heartless approaches to immigration in this country. Why is it that a nation of immigrants can't look to itself to honor um, appropriate balances of public policy in this space? And and is there hope for us if we are able to vote in those that have correct minds and mentalities about this? So I look at what's happening uh, at the border right now, needless separation of of babies from their parents. And and it's gut-wrenching. It is is gut-wrenching to me as a mom. It's gut-wrenching to me as an American. It's gut-wrenching to me just as a human being. The other morning, I was laying in bed doing uh, what I what I frequently do in the morning, which is, you know, scrolling through that, the headlines. And I, I came across the audio 
of, of kids being separated from their parents at the border. And I clicked on it and I started to listen to it. And at that exact same moment, it happened that, that my baby girl started waking up across the hall. And so while my iPhone was playing the sounds, the screams of kids uh, being separated from their, their caregivers, I heard from the other room across the hall the sound of my own baby happy and babbling and waking up. And I thought in that moment, it, what has become of us? And, and more than that, there before the grace of God go I. How fortunate am I? How fortunate are most of us that we have never had to pick up and flee our homes uh, with only the, the clothes on our back and our children in tow and come to the border of a, of a foreign land hoping to be met. Uh, with safety and security and opportunity uh, only to be met uh, with, with fear and, and despair and the most cruel and inhumane type of policies. And doesn't that show really what's on the line um, this year when, when it comes to our immigration policy and, and frankly, when it comes to uh, what's on the line for our country as a whole? I fundamentally believe we can have an immigration policy that is fair, that is consistent with the best of American values, and that also keeps our country safe. These things are not mutually exclusive, uh, but we can't tolerate an administration using human beings, using young children, using infants as pawns and bargaining chips uh, in, a, in a really cruel ploy to, to get a border wall built. What we need in these trying times is people who are gonna sit down and do the hard work of creating a comprehensive immigration reform package of the nature that our country needs. One that provides a pathway to citizenship for dreamers one that ensures that we're fulfilling our legal obligations under our own law to asylum seekers and refugees, one that makes sure that we are attracting highly skilled workers to our country, the kind that will help our country grow, and one that makes sure that we're keeping the bad guys out and keeping our country safe. We can do all of that, but we've got to have people in office who are gonna take this problem seriously and put in the hard work. And uh, that's not what we've seen out of this administration. And we certainly haven't seen uh, Brian Mapp uh, being willing to, to voice his opposition to, to what's going on in Washington. I really like that notion of hard work because as simple as the concept seems, increasingly it takes a lot of political will simply to even start a discussion about something. By, by that I mean, you know, Florida is no stranger to some of the most intense debates um, that, that take place across our country, um, whether it has to do with kind of Cuban immigrants on the border um, to the more tragic instances of, of shootings that have occurred um, at a nightclub in Orlando or more recently um, this year at Stoneman Douglas High School. That notion of political will 
matters a lot because even having a debate right after that high school shooting in the Florida state legislature about gun control, about even um, regulating bump stocks that make it easier for, you know, rapid fire shooting, or even simple concepts like background checks or investing in health and wellness programs, even the threshold question of having a debate, it didn't seem like there was a lot of political will to do so because there were obviously broader special interests at play. You can call it the NRA, you can call it your base, you can call it a number of things that might be nipping at your heels, but they they do nip at the heels of a lot of electeds, both at the state and local level, but also congressionally. When you take an issue, not just like gun control, but you know, just broadly and in, in general, you take an issue in which it is really hard to reconcile disparate worldviews um, but as you said, you need to stand up. You need to do the hard work to figure out how do you craft balanced immigration policies or how do you honor a Second Amendment right while still in- instituting adequate and just frankly sane checks and balances to that system. It seems that the notion of political will is a harder thing to grasp these days because it's a lot easier for people to just be holden to their base and their interests. You see this with Donald Trump day in and day out. You even see it with the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. How can we actually encourage people to roll up their sleeves and get to work and have that will to overcome just the those that write checks and are those special interests versus those that are affected by these really, really intense and, and earth-shattering policies day to day? Legislating is hard work, and we should be electing individuals who are willing to roll up their sleeves and do that hard work. I think these days it's really easy uh, to stand on your soapbox, to use your position as a candidate or a member of Congress to uh, run the rounds on cable news, to, to get your 15 minutes of fame on uh, Facebook Live or, or Twitter. That's a heck of a lot easier than it is to sit down with your colleagues, uh, maybe a group of folks who don't necessarily share the same opinions. And that can be people across party lines, or that can be folks within your own party who who have differing views. It's much harder to do that uh, than it is to go around on uh, self-promotional tours and uh, just talk about your ideas and what you want, but not actually uh, do the work to implement it. And, you know, what I can tell you is that from, from spending six years in Washington, I learned what it takes to be able to sit down at a table and and figure out how to build consensus, how to find pathways to move forward, even when they're folks with with differing opinions. And that's the kind of approach that, that I would intend to bring to Congress, because once again, I would see my job as being there in order to deliver for the people of our country and the people of my district. And if you're not legislating, if you're not doing that hard work, ultimately, at the end of the day, you are just not doing your job. You know, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a candidate at this moment in the country. There have been incredible um, almost record level uh, first time candidates that have leaned into running for office at all levels, whether it's you know nationally like your race or more locally like a, a city council race. Um, 
certainly number a number of Obama alumni are running, um, but even first-time candidates that are leaning into organizations um, like the Arena or Swing Left um, or Run for Something to try and get their start of how to be a candidate under this environment. And with this sort of groundswell of momentum of folks that are are signing up for public service, there's also this this other countervailing question that's at hand, which is, um, as a candidate, there are a lot of conversations uh, about you know the policies of this current administration and and change elections that are commentaries on rebuking the policies of this administration. At the same time, though, and and I know you know this well. On the heels of election night in 2016, there were about you know at least 63 million Americans who did vote for the policies that we're confronting today. And with approval ratings of the president still abysmally low, there still are several of those millions of Americans that stand by the policies of this president. So when you think about being a candidate – and when you think about being a candidate in Florida, which is incredibly diverse when you're in one edge of the state to versus the other edge of the state, how do you kind of reconcile this disparate worldview of what it means to be an American when that American view on how America should run, what it should stand for, seems splintered along these lines? The stakes for our country this year couldn't be any higher. I do firmly believe that these are the most important elections in my lifetime and uh, in, many, in, in many other people's lifetimes. And so the question is really, what kind of people do we need to elect in 2018 when there's so much division in our country, when there's so much divisiveness, when there's so much fear of an erosion of American values and institutions. And to my mind, it's at time like, times like these that we need to be electing candidates who can be looking beyond partisan division, who can be truly uniting folks, who can be trying to deliver, not just for some of their constituents, but all of them. We need to counteract the divisiveness and partisanship, not with more divisiveness in partisanship, but with a real spirit of hope and um, a real sense of optimism about our ability to do better as a country. We need to believe that our best days are, in fact, ahead of us and not behind us. And so I approach being a candidate with that in mind. Uh, I see myself as a vehicle for the hopes and the aspirations and the wishes of the everyday people who will vote and elect and send me to Washington to, to represent what they want for their community and our country. And it, it, it's a weighty responsibility, uh, but it's, it's a responsibility that I, I proudly bear uh, because I think at this inflection point, we can actually turn a corner and get to a better place. And I, I really hope to be a part of that change. And I think you're right. It, it can sometimes sound um, among listeners who maybe are casual observers of politics or intent ones, um, it can sometimes sound like a talking point to, to focus on hope or optimism or change. But if we don't do that, then we will be hoisted by our own cynicism and be disaffected and not turn out and vote 
um, for these critical midterm elections, or maybe even feel okay with the status quo of not pushing back. Um, I think that that your candidacy, um, in particular, as someone who um, served this country for for years, um, both at home and abroad, and is now bringing those insights to do so locally um, in your hometown, in your home state, is an incredible commentary of of who we are and who we're trying to be. When when people roll up their sleeves and show up and say, you know what, count me in. I'm going to be part of this conversation. A core component of of how we assess our candidates, though, are are often in terms of the profiles of of who they seem to be um, by way of their bio or you know how they conduct their business with their families and things of that nature. And while it's not always a fair characterization, people often will look to that personal life or that personal way of living as a reflection of of what kind of values or ethos they might bring into office. You, in particular, have an incredible story of not just a family rooted. Um, in in um, the, the state of Florida, um, and not just an incredible educational arc uh, in your own life, having you know studied at Harvard and, and Yale, and as well as uh, Oxford, where you're a Marshall Scholar, um, but you also uh, have an incredibly um, talented and brilliant wife. Um, who I believe herself has worked often in federal election law um, on the on the law enforcement side of the FEC, um, and you have a little one. Um, uh, and I'm curious, from the sense of being both a young mom, from being um, in a same-sex marriage, from being someone who ostensibly day in and day out is talking about the standard issues Americans care about, Floridians care about, health care, the environment, the economy – making sure that they can leave, as you said at the top, their kids a little better off than they came into this world. You're talking about that day to day, but I'm curious as a candidate, has that profile of of being a young mom, of of being of the LGBTQ community, does that rear its head in the conversation? Um, or is that something that most Florida voters are just willing to focus on the core pocketbook issues day to day? When I'm on the campaign trail, People want to talk to me about the issues that are affecting them day to day. People want to talk to me about health care. They want to talk to me about the environment. They want to talk to me about tax reform. They want to talk to me about preserving Medicare and, and Social Security. These are the things that are most pressing to them. I'm aware, however, that the fact that I am a woman and that I am a mother and that I am a member of the LGBT community uh, is inspirational to a lot of people, especially in a year when there is so much reason for despair and especially at a time uh, when members of of so many minority communities, uh, women and LGBT persons included, uh, have been marginalized and, and victimized. The way I look at it is that being a member of the LGBT community means that I know what it feels like to have felt the sting of discrimination. I, I know what it feels like to have been treated as, as a second-class citizen, and therefore that makes me ever more likely to really get into the arena and fight for all of those people who have ever been marginalized or left out or left behind. And whether that is standing in in solidarity with people of color who've been the victims of 
police brutality or whether it is standing in solidarity with dreamers who fear deportation or women who had to say, me too. What, what being a member of these communities allows me to do is empathize with those who are hurting most and to honestly convey that I'm committed to making a country that is inclusive for all of us, for, for each and every one of us. And I do ultimately believe that at the end of the day, Congress is better, our country is better uh, when our governing institutions represent the diversity of America. So when we elect women and LGBT persons and persons of, of color and religious minorities, we end up with policies that are more broadly in tune with the entirety of our country. Uh, and that serves each and every one of us. That, that's beautifully put. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, have you noticed a, a, a difference in your view of maybe your own American identity, having, you know, being representative of those different communities that you mentioned um, and, and, and fighting for the values that you believe are fit not only for your own family, but for your, your neighbors, your constituents, um, your, your fellow countrymen. Has there been a shift in your view of what it means to be an American when you go from kind of life as a quote-unquote civilian versus life as a candidate? I'm so incredibly proud to be an American. I have been proud to be an American for as, as long as I can remember because I was taught at a very early age from my parents and my grandparents about the ideals that our country stood for, about the promise that our country provided for everyone. And I have never felt more American or more proudly American than I have felt over the course of almost the last year running for office. Uh, because in a way, the, the essence of being an American, enacting that Americanness, is, is civic participation. Our, our democracy only works when individuals decide to take part in it, uh, when we advocate, when we march, when we vote, and when we run for office. And there is nothing more American than a girl who grew up in, in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, who happens to be a member of the, the LGBT community, uh, a young mom, Jewish. There's, there's nothing more American than that girl who looks very little like most people who have ever held elected office in our country, being able to raise her hand and get in the arena and say, I'm putting myself up as an advocate and as a representative of our community because I think I can help us live the American dream. Um, so I'm just grateful every day uh, that I'm from this country and that I have this opportunity. I, I love that. And I think that that is to, to anyone, you know, anyone who's listening, um, whether you have politics of the left, of the right, of something else altogether, I think Lauren's story is an important commentary on um, not necessarily being political, but as you said, leaning in, jumping into the arena and, and getting involved and raising your hand. 
Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't um, wrap by asking you kind of a couple, uh, just two quick questions on the news of the day. Um, we know that um, in just a few days, almost a week, as you mentioned earlier, kind of as a outcome of the heartless immigration policies of of both this president and frankly this Congress, um, there's an imminent deadline for those uh, with who are designated dreamers in this country um, to go and register for their DACA status. Um, and after August 8th, pending a certain court decision, it may very well um, fall out as a registration designation in this country. Um, what would your guidance be or your statement be to those um, elected officials in the leadership of either party right now on the Hill uh, to try and confront this imminent issue, also another heartless extension of the Trump immigration policies? My guidance here is pretty simple and clear. There is broad bipartisan consensus on finding a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers, so there's absolutely no reason why Congress can't act. There you have it. And I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that speaks back to that political will um, that you're that you're um, pointing out earlier. And, and part of that political will will determine um, or sorry, will be based upon. Are we putting people in elected office who have the courage to stand and the, the moral fortitude um, to reflect the will of who we are as a people, as a community and not just the politics of fear? Um, Lauren, we really appreciate your your candidacy and what you're doing out there and for joining American Enough. If there are those that are interested in learning more about your platform, um, your, your life on the trail, or even helping out in some capacity, what can they do to get involved? Thanks for asking, Vikram. Uh, you can check out our website at laurenbearforcongress.com. You can follow us on uh, Twitter at Lauren Bear or on Instagram at Bear for Congress. And uh, you can like us on Facebook at Lauren Bear for Congress. And we would love to engage people all over the country. That's awesome and, and incredibly helpful. And we'll, we'll be sure to also amplify some of those resources. Uh, I'm sure it's busy. I'm sure it's tiring. I'm sure it's exhausting. But are you having fun out there on the trail? Every single day. Uh, it is the hardest job I have ever had, uh, but also the most rewarding. And every day I'm grateful to be able to be doing this, to be able to fight for my community and my country. I wouldn't be doing anything else. Well, we appreciate the hard work, Lauren, and uh, always good to talk to a fellow 44 family member. Take care and good luck out there. (laughs) Indeed. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.